You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's important, first of all, to say that Hans Horbiger was not a stupid man. An engineer by trade, he invented a new metal valve system for blast furnaces that revolutionized steel production in 1894. Without that valve, and his subsequent revisions to it, the age of the skyscraper, the automobile, the airplane, would have been impossible. He helped design and build Budapest's subway system, contributed to early aviation, built a manufacturing empire. No, Hans Horbiger was not a stupid man. And he wasn't a crazy man, either. Nor was he evil. And yet, in September of 1894, Hans had a thought. Just a thought, while looking up at the night sky. Just a thought that caught on him, obsessed him. A thought that must go down as one of the stupidest one of the craziest, and finally, one of the most evil thoughts in history. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Ice and Fire and Fury. It started as something small. Through his telescope, Hans was caught by the light of the moon. How could it be so bright? Maybe, he thought, It was because there was something about the surface that people didn't realize. Maybe, he thought, the moon was covered with ice. Except, drop the maybes. Because Horbiger didn't consider this idea a curious inkling. No, he was sure. As quickly as it entered his head, it became a staunch conviction. The moon is made of ice. In fact, he didn't consider it an idea or a hypothesis, or even a belief. Instead, he called it a recognition, like an obvious thing simply realized as a matter of fact. Not long after, he had his second recognition. He was visited by a dream in which he hung in outer space in front of a giant pendulum swinging back and forth. As it swung, it grew longer and longer, and finally broke. To Hans, This meant that Isaac Newton's inverse square law was incorrect, and that the sun's gravity ceased to pull at three times the distance of Neptune, which is like the least sexy dream analysis in history. But it meant a great deal to Horbiger, especially in conjunction with his ice moon recognition. Together, these two notions tumbled, snowballed, if you will, into something much larger. 
In 1898, Hans Horbiger joined up with school teacher and amateur astronomer Philip Fouth. Together, they worked to codify Horbiger's great idea, a new cosmology describing the formation of the universe, the nature of the solar system, and the history of the Earth. World Ice Theory. All right. <laughs> uh, let's just, okay, let's try to explain this. Bear with me, because... Yeah. Start at the beginning, at the very beginning, many millions of years ago, there was one giant star, millions of times larger than the sun we know. And there was a second, much smaller, dying star. This second star was cold and composed mostly of water. And, oh God, <laughs> we're already in the weeds. Uh, yes, a star made of water. Horbiger understood that hydrogen was the most abundant element in the universe, but according to him, almost all of that hydrogen is held up in water, mostly ice, which Horbiger called the true cosmic form of water. There were a few heavy metals out there too, iron, lead, and those were in the heart of stars, but the business end were in how they separated and combined oxygen and hydrogen into and out of the form of water. Stars had a bunch of water on their surface and shot out steam. That steam split water into its constituent parts. The hydrogen was ejected outward while the heavier oxygen stayed on the surface, feeding the fiery furnace. Then, the gravity of the star would pull that hydrogen back in, combining with the oxygen, creating more water, and the process began anew. But if a star started losing the inertia of that process, its fires grew cold and water accumulated. Got it? I know, I know. You don't have to get it, but do you at least get it? Great. So, millions of years ago, one of these dying water stars collides with a super gigantic star, and that creates a huge explosion. The watery contents of the small star are flung out at remarkable speeds way off into space where they turn into giant ice blocks. The remains of that giant superstar are our sun. The other stars you see in the night sky are not stars at all, but ice blocks glimmering in the distance. The planets are, well, they're, they're the planets, but they're are a lot more of them, and all of them but Earth are covered in and or composed of ice. Also, in Horbiger's view, space was not a vacuum, instead inundated with tiny ice flakes that slow down the orbits of all celestial bodies. Not just the planets, but all of the ice blocks in the distance that we misbegottenly call stars. And once they are sufficiently slowed, they get caught up in the gravity of other planets or the sun so that all the planets are being bombarded constantly by ice blocks. Most of them get caught up by the planets further out in the solar system, Saturn, Jupiter, Neptune. And that explains why they are much larger than the inner planets. Their mass is mostly made of the ice that's collided with them, see. But plenty of ice blocks still hit the sun where they cause sunspots, which let off fine ice mist that covers Mercury and Venus. But Earth, of course, is the most interesting and important planet in the solar system. Something about its distance from the sun and the cover of the outer ring of gas giants, or I mean ice giants, meant that Earth alone remained unfrozen by ice. 
When the sun's ice mist, or steam, makes its way here, that turns into rain. When ice blocks reach Earth, they take the form of shooting stars, or comets, and they are responsible for hail, tornadoes, hurricanes, all the scary stuff. And then there's the moon, the gleaming sphere that got this whole thing started in the first place. In Horbiger's estimation, the moon had once been its own independent planet until, slowed by the ice ether that inundates the whole of space, it was caught up in our orbit, captured as a moon. Eventually, according to world ice theory, it'll fall into the Earth, crashing, depositing its ice and core through a massive and devastating collision. This has happened before. Luna, our current captured planet moon, is maybe the fourth or the fifth ice-covered planet to fall slowly into Earth. This cycle of moons being captured, orbiting, and crashing goes a long way towards explaining uh, everything in terrestrial history. The extinction of the dinosaurs, the Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, Viking gods, Atlantis, especially Atlantis, pretty much every bit of geology and mythology, magic and history, it was all true, and it all owed to ice moons. Even human life itself stemmed from the crashing of an ice block into the planet, an ice block suffused with divine sperma. Whew. Okay. That should suffice. There's plenty more to world ice theory. Uh, It rejects Einstein's relativity, plenty of Newton, nuclear fission and fusion, and a good dozen or so other established scientific facts, while replacing them with more ice-centric weirdness. But let's call that primer good enough. By the first decade of the 20th century, Horbiger and Fouth had worked all of this up into a grandiose system, which they took to the German scientific community, who, if you'd believe it, were, uh, unimpressed, to put it generously. They were laughed out of every university they approached, is more like it, obviously. None of it made any sense, and maybe it's important to note that as places to take your half-formed pseudoscience go... Early 20th century Germany was probably the worst choice. Up through the 1930s, Germany was the apex of scientific thought throughout the world. If you're a humanities fan, you may look back at late 19th and early 20th century Paris with jealousy. Every writer, painter, sculptor, philosopher, and poet worth their salt seemed to hold up in Paris, from Monet to Brancusi, Stein to Joyce, Beckett to Sartre. Well, Germany was that, but for science, Einstein, Heisenberg, Bohr, Szilard, von Neumann, nearly anybody who was anybody in physics, in chemistry, in cosmology, came from, went to, or worked in Germany. A school teacher and a valve engineer peddling a grand unified theory of ice didn't stand a chance. So Hans decided to take his case to the people believing that if he could make inroads with the common man, the scientific establishment would eventually be forced to take him seriously. In 1912, he and Fouth published Glacial Cosmogony, a nearly 800-page brick of a book, laying out their ideas in language anyone could understand. Or no one. It's more like no one. Reading Glacial Cosmogony is like trying to read several pounds of Ikea instruction manuals through a fever dream. You can't go a sentence without stumbling across some batch of letters that look suspiciously word-like 
And yet, what could they possibly mean? Er, yeah, here, ha have a taste. The universal motive powers are the collective force of gravitation and the distributive force of steam explosion. To these may be added the inertia forces of translation and revolution, the tidal influences of close cosmic bodies resulting in rotation, and the dead resistance of the interstellar medium. The dualism of cosmic matter, glowing stellar material and ice, and of power, collective gravitation and disruptive explosion, creates every new tensions and thus guarantees the eternity of cosmic life engendering the primordial chaos, ordering it into a solar system, and finally bringing about again its end. As you might imagine, the book was not exactly a hit, especially being released during the First World War, where people especially had better things to worry about than decoding mad, ice-obsessed ravings. But Horbiger had a secret weapon up his sleeve. He was rich as balls. After the war was over, he devoted a good part of his fortune to promoting his dogma. Pamphlets, posters, radio shows, even early movies. He created a whole newspaper dedicated to providing the real news of the day. Ice. He called it the key to world events, and it apparently grew to a pretty decent circulation. He started to gain a small following, which he encouraged to go to university science lectures to heckle the physicists and astronomers who had turned him away. Down with scientific orthodoxy, give us Horbiger, they yelled. And Horbiger himself was just as disruptive and obstinate. He dismissed photos of the stars in the Milky Way as fake. He greeted his critics with an almost Old Testament wrath, warning them not to trust math that contradicted him and to believe him or be treated as enemies. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Slowly, through sheer force of will, Horbiger was gaining traction, gaining followers, both impressionable and impressed. One of those impressed ones was named Houston Stuart Chamberlain, a half-German, half-British philosopher who recognized a bit of himself in Horbiger's whacked-out, easily-rejected ideas. Chamberlain had been working on his own theory for years, with varying degrees of success. He called it the Foundations. Among the precepts of the Foundations were a love for Wagner, a belief in a superior Nordic race descended from the peoples of Atlantis, and a deep distrust for Jews, who were the cause of all wars. Houston Stuart Chamberlain, called Hitler's John the Baptist. And that is how 
world ice theory came to become the official scientific dogma of the Nazis. There were more steps to it than that. For one, Horbiger had to die, which he did in 1931, just in time to miss Hitler's full ascension. Those who he left behind to care for the World Ice Empire, which at this point included a couple of scientific institutes, saw the rise of National Socialism and gamely allied themselves with it. And for their part, Horbiger's science neatly solved a number of problems that had plagued the peculiar wants of the nascent Nazi regime. Central to their ideology was a belief in and pride for German greatness. And there was nothing greater about Germany in the early 20th century than German science. The apex of scientific thought. Bohr, Szilard, von Neumann. All of them Jews, or quote-unquote Jewish sympathizers. And worst of all, Einstein. Einstein, the greatest mind in human history and a Jew right there before the nose of the most virulently anti-Semitic government ever to darken the earth. When Chamberlain introduced Heimlich Himmler to world ice theory then, it must have seemed like a perfectly tailored answer. An alternative science that rejected Einstein, that celebrated the cold, icy mountains that had birthed the great Aryan race, that was created by a native Austrian, not just that, but an amateur Austrian who triumphed over the lies of the Jewish scientific conspiracy just as the amateur Austrian Hitler would triumph over the global Jewish conspiracy to lessen and destroy Germany. Himmler appointed Hans Robert Skultus, a German meteorologist, to the post of SS Head of Weather Prediction and Control, under the caveat that both goals be accomplished through world ice theory. He also elevated Fouth, Horbiger's co-writer, the schoolteacher, to the position of professor, though he possessed no degree and never taught at university. Hitler demanded his chief architect, Albert Speer, design a great astronomical center for his new vision of Berlin, with three floors. The first would be devoted to Ptolemy, the second to Copernicus, and the third and highest floor? Why, Hans Horbiger, of course. Meanwhile, Einstein left and von Neumann, and Szilard, anyone who could. Niels Bohr was put under house arrest in Copenhagen. Even Heisenberg, the greatest German-born Gentile scientist, was left to develop a German nuclear bomb in an unguarded cave where his small team was constantly exposed carelessly to radiation. Szilard writes Einstein in 1939, urging him to urge Roosevelt to develop a bomb in America which jumpstarts the Manhattan Project, on which von Neumann also worked. In case you missed the news, the Nazis were defeated. Himmler saw it coming, and tried to arrange a peace accord with the Allies, independent of and secret from Hitler. But he was noticed, branded a traitor, fled into hiding. He was captured, handed over to British soldiers, who soon realized who he was. Himmler, who had headed the Rhine Army, who had been second in the Nazi party, Himmler, who had arranged the creation of the death camps, bit into a cyanide capsule while being examined by an English doctor and was, shortly thereafter, thrown unceremoniously into a shallow pit outside of Lundberg. Not long after that, with the Soviets knocking on Berlin's front door, Hitler took poison with his new death bride, Eva Braun. But, 
Afraid of either the poison's potential pain or failure, he shot himself with his service weapon before he could share the cyanide fate of his once mistress and once top aide. The Soviets burnt his remains in a petrol-soaked pile, the site of which is, probably, a parking lot now. The fate of world ice theory was equally as unmarked and unmourned. With the fall of Hitler, it disappeared practically overnight, like ice tossed to a fire. In their efforts to spread and immortalize his ideas, Horbiger's disciples allied themselves with arguably the worst moment in human history. But I keep coming back to the man himself. Hans Horbiger wasn't stupid. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't even evil. I, I don't think anyone can earnestly question his conviction to his ideas and the honesty of that conviction. But what underpinned that surety, that importance, that temerity? I don't know. But a few nights ago, I found myself looking up at this low-hanging gibbous moon shining out immortally, its gleam catching on the waters of Lake Michigan. And I had this idea. There was Einstein. There was Niels Bohr, Isaac Newton, Copernicus, Ptolemy. Names nearly everyone knows. People whose contributions are monuments even in themselves, standing tall through time. Without Hans Horbiger, there could be no age of skyscrapers, no age of automobiles, no age of airplanes. But let's be honest. How many valve engineers can you name? From the birthplace of the skyscraper and of the atomic age, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. 